Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and he spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, good morning. Welcome to our service. Welcome online if you're joining us now. My name's Andy, one of the uh, members of staff here. Um, I'm thrilled to be back. We've been away for a little while, and it's very nice to be back here with everyone. Um, Let's begin with a word of prayer, just reading from Psalm 119. Give us understanding according to your word. Father, we pray now, we recognize that it's possible to hear these words, to hear what you're saying, but not to understand. So we now pray with humility that you would give us hearts to understand what you're speaking and what you're saying. Allow us to hear words that are for everyone, but also directly for us. Thank you that you're the kind of God who speaks individually to every person in this room and everyone online and everyone in the future who might be watching or listening to this sermon. Thank you that you are able and sovereign in your speaking into everyone's lives. And I pray that you would do that with us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been going through the introduction to John's Gospel And there's been a lot said already, but now we're getting into the names. We are introduced to a whole load of characters in this passage. And I want you to notice, first of all, a very important theological truth. Now, just remember, I've taught a course on Bible reading, so I really know what I'm talking about. And what I'd like to uh, point your attention to is this. 
it is very, very important, in my opinion, that um, the, the order in which names occur in this gospel is of extreme importance and uh, um, it, it, it shows the character of that name. Well, John, obviously, is the first name that gets mentioned in John's <laughs> gospel because he's biased. But if you look at the passage, there is one name that gets mentioned second, which in essence is really first, um, and that is the name Andrew. So if we're looking for importance, Andrew is the most important character in John's gospel, just to uh, put it out there. But um, in general, this is where we get introduced to new characters, new characters in John's gospel. And if you've been reading or going through uh, John's gospel so far, you will have been hearing echoes from the beginning of the Bible, which was Genesis. So the beginning of John's gospel is very clearly echoing the beginning of Genesis. It starts with the same words, in the beginning. But I think right here we've also got echoes to that first book of the Bible, Genesis, but the middle section in a condensed form. Because the book of Genesis is all about God starting his community, starting God's people, the people of Israel that they would become, with characters like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here in this passage, Jesus is going around and re-establishing, forming God's community again. And if you go back and read these for yourself, you might hear echoes of those original characters in Genesis there are similarities between Peter and Abraham. There are similarities between Nathaniel and Jacob. Jesus, God, is forming his community to go on mission with him right at the beginning. That's why we've got suddenly a whole load of names. But this isn't done in order for us to sit back and just watch. A bit like you would in a film when all the new characters are being introduced and their different superpowers or whatever, and you just sit back and watch. Um, this is where you need to lean in and engage. The point is not to get lost in this story, but to get found in this story. Because the whole idea here is for you and I to read about these characters and to relate to them. Because Jesus calls multiple people in multiple different ways, and we see multiple different ways that they then respond to Jesus. And I think that is to help us lean into the story and relate to them and see, well, I'm a bit like that, or I'm not like that, I react differently, or this kind of thing, to get us thinking, to get us engaging with the story. Because God is not, has not given up calling people to follow him. He's still doing it today, and he does it through these words. So the point right now is not for you to sit back and just listen to what happened, but to engage and to figure out what God might be doing right now in your life, what he might be saying to you, how he might be calling you, how he might be inviting you to follow him today. But first, I want to address the elephant in the room, or the elephant in the passage, which is the, the general craziness of Jesus. Have you ever considered how mad it was that Jesus recruited people in the first place? See, all great leaders in this world will write books about their great leadership, and hopefully they will say that they were only able to lead great things because they had great teams 
who filled in the gaps or enabled them to do the things that they weren't able to do. Now that's the case with every human being apart from Jesus. Because in this story, in the Gospels, we find that there is not a single moment when Jesus actually needed his disciples. And there are many moments when his disciples essentially get in the way or make it harder. They give him temptations to give up. They give him every reason to give up on this entire calling. They, le- they, they uh, get in the way, they slow him down at times. You think about it, the next story, the wedding at Cana. Jesus doesn't get his disciples to fill up the water jugs. He gets the servants. The disciples are just watching. In the next story, the Samaritan woman, when Jesus uh, meets with the Samaritan woman, has a great conversation and then uh, interacts with the whole town, where are the disciples? They're away getting lunch. In the further on, there's Jesus feeding the 5,000, and he doesn't use the disciples' lunch. He uses a small boy's lunch. The point here is Jesus did not need to recruit a team to enable him to fulfill his mission. And yet he still did. And this just tells me two things, just basically. First, Jesus had such confidence in God's plan for his life that he knew it couldn't be ruined by other people. John 16, 32 says this, the hour, Jesus is speaking these words, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you lot, the disciples, are going to be scattered. At the moment when Jesus most needed support from his friends, they scattered, they ran away when he was being led to the cross. You're all going to be scattered, each to his own home, and you're going to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. Jesus had such confidence in God's plan for his life, in God's involvement in his life, that he knew if he was faithful to God, then no human being could stand in the way of God's plan for his life. And I think the same is true for us. We cannot blame other people for the fact that we are not following God or being faithful. Yes, people may make it harder, You might go into certain environments or situations where following Jesus is more difficult than it was previously. But we cannot blame them for our lack of faithfulness. If we're faithful to the calling that God has put on our lives, He will be faithful to that, no matter the people that are around us. It is quite easy. I find it easy even to blame my own children. Hey, I can't really pray anymore. I can't be devoted to God in in prayer anymore because I've got kids or this, that, or the other. Well, I need to work around that situation. I need to learn to live in a new scenario. But my devotion to prayer is not related to my kids or anyone else. It's my own faithfulness to God and the calling He has on my life. I think the same is true for you. And the second thing then, and I think this is remarkable for us, is that Jesus had such confidence, not in his disciples, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't recruit based on ability. He recruited knowing what the Holy Spirit was going to do in these individuals later on. In the next book, the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them to turn from being failures to being heroes of the faith. But it wasn't that Jesus believed in them, and that's why he called them to follow him. It's because he believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, I think this is relevant for us. We can often think 
that it is impossible for us to change, for us to really do anything great for God, for us to really follow God faithfully, to make those steps, to do that bold thing. We can think, well, I don't have it in us, in me. But actually, if you stop believing in yourself, actually you might be opening up a gap to believe more in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God can, he's shown it here, if you carry on reading the Bible, these individuals who at this point were not trustworthy, were not able, suddenly become heroes of the faith. Not because they suddenly got their ideas together, no, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he can do the same in you, and he can do the same in the people around you. If you're a leader in this church or whatever it is, and you're discipling others, it's tempting to fall into the trap of thinking, this will not go anywhere. They cannot change. Well, people cannot change in and of themselves, but the Holy Spirit can change anyone. Jesus believed these two things. Such confidence in the plan of God for his life and such confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit, that is why he was able to recruit a group of people to be with him on mission wherever he went so that he could fulfill his purpose and then send them out to fulfill their purposes. The next character I want to introduce you to is John. We've already heard about John the Baptist. He's uh, already been mentioned quite a lot in this gospel. But at this point, I see something incredible, and it's the readiness of John. We had the craziness of Jesus, now the readiness of John. It says this, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and, he, and just think about this. At this point in history... John was one of the most influential religious leaders ever. He had been called by God. He started maybe in a town setting, but then God said to him, right, I want you to start a great ministry. I want you to do a church plant for me. And he's thinking, right, I'm off to Jerusalem. And God says, no, you're out to the wilderness. Try it from there. See how it goes. So he has to pack up and move out into the middle of nowhere and start preaching, I imagine, to the wild animals at first, and see what happened. Not long later, there were enormous crowds gathering to him. He had followers from all over the place. Even the religious leaders from Jerusalem were moving out to see, to hear, to talk to, to ask questions of John the Baptist. He was such an influential figure. He's written about by other historians of the uh, area at the time. He had disciples that we meet later on in the book of Acts who are still wandering around and they're disciples of John. He had such a huge following. And here's just two of them, but these two represent a very large crowd. So John's there standing with two of his disciples and he looks at Jesus. This time Jesus is not walking towards him. Jesus is walking away. As Jesus walked by, and John said, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they packed up their bags and they followed Jesus. And now just think about this for a second. This man, Jesus, has got no street cred whatsoever at this point in terms of his ability to gather a crowd, in, in terms of him having done anything. He hasn't done his miracles. He hasn't done any healings. He hasn't done teaching. Jesus is new on the block. John is the most respected religious leader in the area. And yet John says, there he is, go, follow him. 
Or he doesn't even say, go follow him. He just points out, and we'll get to this in a second. He just says, there's the Lamb of God, and then they follow him. And John doesn't run after them and go, no, 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 I didn't mean that. Come back to me. We've still got work to do. He lets them go. He lets them go, and he lets them go in their droves. Later on in John's gospel, it says that Jesus' crowd were now baptizing far more than John was. He hands over his ministry in the blink of an eye. How does he stay so ready? See, right at the beginning of ministry, or if you've become a Christian, right at the beginning, you can be so enthusiastic, so malleable, like a bit of clay that's very wet and so malleable, you can move it in any direction. Anything God says to you, you go, you follow him. But as time sets in, as your experiences maybe harden you a bit, you become less malleable, less able to change, depending on what God is saying. You become a bit more fixed, a bit more grumpy, perhaps, in your spiritual life. That can often be the story. Or you just get very successful, very powerful, full of all sorts of authority. You get a following. That is very hard to give up. You might have got the perfect job after months and months of prayer. You get a perfect job. It's amazing. It's really fulfilling. It's making a whole load of money. You're living in a great situation in life. And then you get a word or something, and it, the sense is God is moving you or trying to move you in a different direction. Now, that is a lot harder to give up than taking the job in the first place. But John stays so ready. He's able to give up his entire ministry for the sake of listening and obeying God. Because right from the beginning, the whole point was for, that he would prepare the way of the Lord. It would have been so easy for John to have forgotten that and put that to the back of, the, sort of, back of his mind and made it all about, look, what I can do now. But no, he was all about that. So I guess my question is, how ready are you at either, maybe, maybe you have to give something up at the moment. Maybe God is calling you to give something up, or maybe God is calling you to take something up at the moment. But whatever he do, he's doing, he's speaking to you. He might be redirecting you. It might be a wholesale change. It might be a small tweak. But are you ready? Are you always ready to hear the word of God and do it, like John was at this moment? Because Jesus was off. Previously, Jesus was hanging around. Maybe John thought, hey, I could build a ministry with my cousin Jesus. We could be Jesus and John. But now, Jesus is on his way out. This is the tough moment that John is tested. And he responds. I wonder, it doesn't say exactly how John kept himself ready. But the next character, the most important one, Andrew, is one of John's disciples. And I think we can learn from Andrew perhaps how John stayed so ready. So let's now move on from the craziness of Jesus, the readiness of John, to the eagerness of Andrew. Andrew displays two levels of eagerness. The first is simply to go and follow Jesus. And this is what I was getting at. Do you notice at the drop of a hat, he's able to go and follow? And John didn't even kick him and say, go. He just said, look, it's the Lamb of God. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that Andrew had been listening to John's teaching all of the time. Because John had been teaching, I'm preparing the way of the Lord. The Lord is going to come, and his nickname is going to be the Lamb of God. So get ready. When I say those words, go. 
A bit like a hypnotist. When they say certain words, you turn into a chicken or something. <laughs> Andrew was listening. He was listening to the teaching. Many of his counterparts were not listening because later in the gospel, there are still people hanging out with John. They haven't given up to follow Jesus. Many of the religious leaders heard the same teaching from John about you need to follow the Lamb of God when he comes, and then they are the ones who oppose Jesus when he moves back into the city. So many people had heard the teaching of John. Many of them had not listened. Andrew listened to teaching. He kept it in mind, even though it wasn't immediately applicable. And that's quite important. Many things that you hear won't immediately be applicable or relevant today, but eventually they will. And so you stay ready by chewing on these things, by thinking about these things, by considering them and talking about them. And then when the situation arises, you're ready and eager to follow. But do you notice this? Andrew first goes and follows Jesus, and he doesn't tell Peter. I would have thought, maybe, if Andrew's so eager, he's going to run back home, quick, Peter, we found him, and then he goes. But there's almost an extra level of eagerness that comes to Andrew after he's spent some time with Jesus. And I think we get this in the rest of the Bible as well. There's first this just obedience to the teaching of God and willingness to respond. But then there's another level of eagerness that comes, I think, through experience. Because it is after Andrew goes and eats and spends time with Jesus, after those first few hours, and then he goes and tells Peter. And then he switches from calling Jesus a rabbi to calling Jesus the Messiah. Everything had changed because he just sat down and had dinner with Jesus. Now, was Jesus just the best chef in the world? I think the clue comes in one of the words that's here. See, it says this in verse 39. Come, he replied, and you will see Jesus speaking to him. So Andrew said, where are you staying? And he says, come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. Sounds relatively innocuous, just reporting facts. But when you realize what the Greek word is underneath this, and how John translates this same Greek word later in his gospel, if you've ever read the gospel, you might recognize what's going on here. So we're going to retranslate it. This is as valid a translation because this is the same Greek word, um, and this is how it's translated later in John's gospel. Andrew says, where are you staying? Jesus says, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was abiding, and they abided with him. Now, that word abiding has huge significance later on in the John's Gospel. We're going to get to it maybe in a few years' time. In John chapter 15, and I'm just going to read this, and I want you to think, imagine you're at dinner with Jesus. You're abiding with Jesus physically. You're Andrew in this story. What do you experience at the dinner table? Jesus says this about abiding with him. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Look at all that Andrew experienced just a few hours of having dinner with Jesus physically. He experienced love, the love of the Father expressed to him around the dinner table. Joy, such a joyful time being with Jesus there. Friendship like he'd never known before. Knowledge and insight about himself, about God, about everything. Just spending time with Jesus, chatting to Jesus. And purpose. Jesus has chosen him. He's experienced a new purpose in his life. This is the experience that I think transforms Andrew to the next level of eagerness. An eagerness, like I say, that now he goes and tells Peter and says, come Peter, you've got to experience this for yourself. He goes away and he calls this guy the Messiah. He's no longer just a good teacher. Now that he's spent dinner with this guy, he's abided with him, he's experienced the love and joy and everything else. He could now call himself a friend of Jesus. He experiences all of this. Now he's the Messiah. And that's really the big heart of this series, I think, is for us to go from one level of eagerness to the next. There is a great eagerness in just wanting to hear God's teaching and to obey it and live by it. But I think there is a level of eagerness that comes through experiencing Jesus in this abiding way, experiencing these things for yourself. Now, how do you experience that? Well, I wonder whether it's through the next character, the main character, Nathaniel. He's given a lot of attention in this passage. There he is sitting under a fig tree. We don't know what he's thinking, but many people are thinking that he's praying, considering some of the Psalms perhaps, There he is under the tree. And then Philip runs up and says, the Messiah's here. And Nathaniel says, really? The Messiah from Nazareth is here. And then Philip responds and says, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, how are you meant to read that? How are you meant to read that? Is that just pure doubt, skepticism, a bad attitude that needs to be sorted out? I don't think so because of what Jesus says to him next. When Jesus first meets Nathanael, he says, here is a man in whom there's no deceit. If you read the rest of John's gospel, you will discover uh, in Israel there was a huge amount of deceit and uh, corruption and various factions, division amongst religious groups, people uh, fighting one one another and biting uh, one another's backs. Everything was going on. And there's this character, Nathanael, in whom there's no deceit who has remained faithful, who is committed to the cause. 
And I think you see a higher level of what could appear as skepticism in people who really care. They really want this to be true, but maybe they've been stunned many times. In Israel at the time, many messiahs had arrived historically. Many people had led uprisings or religious movements, but then they died, and those movements finished, disappeared. You can imagine Nathaniel caring so much that the Messiah, the true Messiah that God had promised would come, growing in this, I don't know, possible doubt because he's been let down so many times previously. And I can see that in some people. I feel that sometimes. People can believe that God has great plans for the church globally, but then they see so many situations that seem to be going in the opposite direction. And so perhaps they become a bit skeptical, or it sounds skeptical at least. You talk about great healings, or you talk about great miracles, and they don't give you immediately the response that you'd expect. Now, in some cases, that is mere skepticism, and it's not great, but in some cases, it's because they care as much as Nathaniel did. He was not full of deceit. He cared about the promises of God. And you can see this by his eruption of praise once he realizes that this really is the Messiah. When Jesus says to him, I saw you under that tree. Now, Nathaniel's response could be said to be a bit over the top. He's gone from this slightly doubting to giving the loudest eruption of praise yet in the gospel from anyone out of his mouth. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus clearly isn't the king of Israel at the time. That was a Herod. But Nathaniel sees now. He's been committed to the promises of God all this time. Suddenly, it doesn't take that much for Jesus to convince him. And Nathaniel is erupting in praise. I think he realizes that his time waiting was not time wasting. And I think that's important for us. Sometimes we wait, and we wait, and it's good to wait, and God allows us to wait. But waiting for good things is not wasting. You're not wasting time. You don't want to go with a fake version of the real deal. You want to go with the real one. And Nathaniel wanted that for himself. And I think John wants to highlight this kind of attitude in his gospel, because if you've read the gospel, you might recognize that he begins with a story about a doubter who converts, and he ends the gospel with a doubter who converts, the famous, the more famous doubter, Doubting Thomas. And Thomas is actually the one to give the loudest eruption of praise at the end of the gospel. Nathaniel here gives the loudest eruption of praise at the beginning. I think John is writing this gospel not just for his immediate audience, but for wider audiences who would need time to question, who would need time to consider, who would need to think about these things, but really cared whether they were true or not. John is writing to that kind of a person so that they would believe. And just think about it. Nathaniel passes this test. Nathaniel could have said, I don't believe you. I'm not moving from this fig tree. I'm just going to keep praying. But that test, that glimmer of hope, he goes with it. He follows that uh, breadcrumb trail, and he finds the real deal. 
He, follow, he passes that test. Once he's passed that test, look what Jesus says to him. Nathaniel would not have heard these words if he hadn't followed that little bit of intrigue. Jesus then says, you will see greater things than that. Very truly, I tell you. And at this point, we get into the American Yarl. So Nathaniel is not on his own at this point. Everyone is there. And the, this whole crowd who Jesus has been gathering, Jesus has been speaking to Nathaniel. Now he opens it up to everyone because they've all passed the test. They've all followed Jesus. They've all shown some level of obedience. And now Jesus turns around and says, very truly, I tell Yarl, Yarl will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, you're going to see me fulfilling what Israel was meant to be, the place where God, heaven, met earth. You're going to see that in me. What's he referring to? I imagine the wedding at Cana, which comes very soon after, where he uh, turns water into wine, the conversion of not just a Samaritan woman at a well, but the entire town, the healings, raising Lazarus from the dead. And then obviously, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where these individuals, who were not needed at this point, now become the most necessary human beings on the earth to see the world transform to know about Jesus. Because they're full of the Holy Spirit. You will see greater things than these, Jesus says. If they hadn't passed the test, they would never have heard those words. And the test was simple. Will you follow Jesus just with the next step of obedience, the next thing he's calling you to do. He hasn't told them the end. He leaves that as a mystery. He leaves that as a bit of a surprise for them to find out. He doesn't tell them, hey, here's an itinerary. Do you want to come? He says, look, just follow me. Follow me on the basis of what you currently know, and you're going to see much greater things. And that is still the case for us. It says, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, Quoting from the Old Testament, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. What you've experienced so far in your Christian life is nothing to what you're going to, what you're going to experience in the future. I believe that's in your lifetime. If you follow Jesus faithfully, no one's going to get in your way. There is no limit to what the Holy Spirit can do in you to transform you, to take those next steps. But ultimately, what you're going to experience is Jesus face to face. That is incomparable. None of us can even imagine, we can't grasp at how glorious that moment is going to be. You're only going to experience that if you follow him faithfully. But you can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit can do it by listening to his words. So, just a quick question if the band can come up. Will you follow him? Have you chosen to follow Jesus? And I'm not just speaking to maybe people who aren't, wouldn't call themselves Christians and are listening for the first time. I'm talking to everyone here. Because Jesus is speaking to you. He is inviting you to follow him in something at the moment. Whether it's big or whether it's small. And you have the decision. You have the freedom to choose whether to follow him in this or not. So I'm just going to give a moment while these guys get ready. And then I'm going to pray. Because each of these guys 
I think there was probably a moment where they had to decide. So I'm just going to pause if we just close our eyes. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would speak. It might be nothing relating to anything I said today. It might be something that you've been speaking for a little while into someone's life. It might be a fire that has died down a bit, needs to be rekindled. It might feel like a ship has gone along the river and it's going to take an age to turn it round. And it almost feels like, oh, is it worth it to turn this thing around? It feels like it's drifted so far in the wrong direction. There's no hope now. Well, Lord, in all these situations, please give us the ability to look to Jesus at the cross, who's paid for every trespass. So no matter how far we have trespassed, it doesn't matter whether it's one meter, whether it's 50 meters, whether it's 50 miles we've gone in the wrong direction, you pay for the entire thing. You forgive us, you cleanse us. And you're calling us to follow you. Well, thank you that you speak to us each individually. And I pray, please, confirm to people now that you've heard their prayers. You've heard their longings. You've heard their cries out to you. The moments when they really needed something. They've been asking you for direction. They've been asking you for strength. They've been asking you for some sort of confirmation. Whatever it might be, Lord. Where it's from a faithful heart, please, please respond. And let us know. Holy Spirit, help us to follow Jesus today. Thank you. Thank you for the eruption of praise that Nathaniel expressed. And I pray that we would have that same eruption of praise as we realize that you are truly the Son of God and the King of Israel. Our King, our Lord, our God, our Creator and everything else. And the one who's leading us into a much more glorious future. Thank you. We anticipate the day we see you face to face. We long for it and we look forward to it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.